Welcome to You Are Not A Goat. If you want to follow your passion and do what you love, this is the podcast for you. Without further ado, here's your host, Slimy Zions. Hello and welcome to You Are Not A Goat. My name is Shlemy Zients and I'm your host. Welcome back to the podcast. This is a podcast for people who love to follow their passions and their dreams. People who do not do the regular stuff. People who are living on the edge and doing exciting things every day. Making themselves happy. Doing the things that matter to them. And they do not care what other people think about what they are doing. So... Coronavirus, everyone's talking about it, everyone's busy with it, there's nothing else going on other than coronavirus. The entire world is shut down, there are no flights, there are no restaurants, there are no bars. Everything is closed and we are all at home. I think it's been six weeks since we did our last episode. I hope all you guys are doing well. I've been hearing from many of the listeners, they want to know when is there going to be another episode? Right now. We're doing a new episode right now. We're going to get right into it. Our guest this week is actually a married couple from Los Angeles, California. Their names are Sal and Nina Litvak. They run a project called The Accidental Talmudist. You probably have come across them some point on the internet. They're all over Facebook. They have over a million likes on their page. Not kidding. They have a big YouTube page, hundreds of videos, a lot of viral stuff. They make great content. They're also uh, screenplay writers. They've made a couple movies, documentaries, Really interesting people, but their main project that they're working on right now, as I mentioned, is called The Accidental Talmudist. And the idea is that they try to present Judaism to the masses in a user-friendly, fun, exciting, and fresh way. This interview is uh, longer than the ones we've done in the past. I think it's the longest one we've done so far. It's over an hour, but I highly recommend listening to all of it. Very interesting, very inspiring, very enlightening. And there's also a lot of good advice in there about... uh, how to succeed on social media, making content, etc. Therefore, without further ado, let's get right into this interview. Enjoy. In today's episode, we have two very special guests who I've been following and enjoying their content for a long time. We have Sal and Nina Litvak, from The Accidental Talmudist. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Slimy. Thank you, Slimy. Great to be here. So, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, just to get started, can you tell me a little bit about who you are, and then we'll get into what you do? Uh, sure. Well, um, Nina and I are a screenwriting team, and I'm a film director. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made two movies that were released theatrically. Uh, the first was a comedy about a Passover Seder, uh, pretty raucous and irreverent, but filled with Torah, called When Do We Eat? And our second film uh, was called Saving Lincoln. Uh, and that's about Abraham Lincoln and his best friend, Ward Hill Lehman. Uh, we also run a pretty busy um, Facebook page and, and, and sort of Jewish wisdom platform uh, called Accidental Talmudist. And we have over a million followers around the world. Yeah, I was just going to say a little bit more about what we do on our platform. Um, so we post, you know, we share what we love about Yiddishkeit, what we love about Judaism. Um, 
with everybody and anybody that's interested. Uh, so it's a very, very diverse audience. And the kind of content we share, we do a lot of live videos. Sal is now doing a daily Dapiomi share on Facebook. Right. Um, we do edited videos. We do articles and memes. And we have a podcast. So it's a wide variety of content. And our brand is, you know, friendly, welcoming. We don't judge. We don't pressure. Uh, we just we just share our enthusiasm, and to our uh, you know surprise, it's really resonated with a lot of people. Right. So, how did this all start? Because I I read a little bit about your story, and I realized that this is I don't know about the filmmaking, but the accidental Talmud has definitely started later on. What, um, can you tell us a little bit about the beginning, where you guys started out, maybe how you met, and and all that? Uh. Sure. Uh, Nina and I met uh, on New Year's Eve, secular New Year's Eve, uh, <laughs> 1996 going into 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, uh, we were both, you know, sort of aspiring, struggling filmmakers here in Los Angeles, uh, writing scripts, trying to get a movie made. I was finishing up film school at UCLA. Uh, in our spiritual journeys, uh, at the time that we met, we were both very secular, very disconnected uh, from Yiddishkeit. Uh, I had a bar mitzvah at a conservative synagogue in New York, and, and I, you know, I felt like I was done. I, I, I was bored and uninspired, uh, and then just went looking for my spirituality, which was very important to me, everywhere other than a synagogue. Not uh-huh. other religions, meditation and martial arts, long-distance sports, music, Grateful Dead shows, drumming, uh, all kinds of practices, often involving the breath, uh, that would somehow give me access to this, I don't know, this this feeling that I had that there's a higher world, an inner world, a secret world, and and I just wanted to, to get a glimpse of it, a touch of it, get that you know, get at that higher meaning, that inner meaning. Uh, Nina, maybe you want to speak to where you were coming from at the time that we met. Yeah, so I, um, like probably 80% of Jews in America, tragically, uh, grew up with zero, zero uh, Judaism, zero Yiddishkeit. Um, I am proud to say that I am the first woman in my family to light Shabbos candles in 100 years. Wow. Um, so that's just how, yeah, that's how disconnected my family and so many families have become. You know, the world, I'm from New York, and the world I grew up in, almost everybody I knew was Jewish, almost all my friends, my teachers, you know, it was a Jewish world, but yet nobody had any interest or connection with actual Judaism. Uh, nobody, we weren't even high holiday Jews, we weren't even reformed Jews. We were just thoroughly and completely assimilated and the feeling was there's this kind of understanding among everybody I knew, well, that religion is the opiate of the masses, and it's totally obsolete, and we have no need for it, and aren't we so much more sophisticated than that? Mm-hmm. And I, that, never, that never satisfied me. I, I was really very, very curious, like, what does it mean to be Jewish? And, and I wanted to know... And in those days, uh, there weren't so many resources. You know, there was no internet, and Chabad was not as uh, ubiquitous as they are now. There was really nowhere for me to go. So, uh, you know, so that so that's where I come from. Really, very very little Jewish identity, but 
you know, thank God everybody did marry Jewish up until this point. Um, and I just feel really blessed that I, you know, that I found my way back. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, and so then what we, so we had a lot in common professionally in terms of we were both trying to get into the film business. But in that first year uh, that we were together, we also both had the experience of losing our grandmothers. Um, and that was, that was very meaningful, uh, I, I know, to both of us. For me, um, my grandmother uh, was a survivor. She was Hungarian. She carried my mother as an infant through a concentration camp, through Theresienstadt. Uh, she lost her husband. Yes, it's amazing. I mean, I think, uh, I think you know, 150,000 uh, children went through Theresien, you know, and perished, and like 100 survived. So w- one of those kids was my mom. Uh, carried by my grandmother. And she lost her husband, my grandfather. He perished at Dachau. Uh, And their love was a a great, great love, a a love for the ages. And after the war, my grandmother was in a DP camp. I mean, she danced at the wedding. She was so happy for everybody that was getting started again, getting back to the business of of living and making families and, and starting over. But for her there really was only her husband. He really was her Bashir, her soulmate. And, uh, and she would just wait for the rest of her life to be reunited with him. So she poured all of her love into her only child, her daughter. And then eventually uh, they ended up moving from Hungary in the 50s to Chile, uh, where my family had been, my father's family, from Ukraine about 1905. Lots of people came to America. My great-grandfather came to South America. And, uh, and so eventually my, my mother and father met in Chile, and then we made our way to the United States in 1970, and I grew up in the New York area. And were you born and, in Chile or uh, were you born in New York? I, I was born in Chile, and I came to the United States when I was five. Spanish is my first language. Cool. Um, you have a Chilean passport? Not anymore. Oh. <laughs> I did, I did take the oath of citizenship when I turned 18, uh, and I've been a proud American citizen ever since. Right. Um, and, uh, and so my grandmother always lived with us, and there were pictures of my grandfather all around. And, uh, you know, and she just poured all of her love and amazing Hungarian cooking and great sense of humor uh, into our home and into our stomachs. And her name was Magda. Um, and we were just incredibly close with her. And she sounds like a saint, and she was, but she was also very human and very funny. Um, and her Yiddish kite, by the way, she did light Shabbos candles every week. Uh, we did have Shabbos dinners in the sense that, I mean, we had, they light, they light candles, and then my dad said a quick beret prayer oven, uh, and we did have a hall and a mozi, and, and, and we always ate dinner together. That was kind of a South American thing. We, we always wondered at American families that would just kind of grab food and, you know, and watch TV. We always ate at the table. Mm-hmm. And on Saturday night, and on Friday night, we added the, the wine and challah. Um, but we didn't talk Torah. It was, it was just something we did because it had always been done. At any rate, um, as for my grandmother, she had a little Hungarian sitter, and, and I would see her reading it on her own uh, in her room, but, you know, it was, it was a private thing for her. 
in that year that Nina and I met uh, in 1997, um, so she was uh, she was 88 years old, and and it was finally a skin cancer that took her. Um, but when she lay, you know, dying, I, I, I was summoned home, you know, come home. At that point, my parents were living in Bethesda, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was at her bedside uh, when she took her last breath. And, you know, if you've ever seen a person leave this world, it's, it's very powerful no matter what's happening. But the experience that I had was, was way beyond uh, because she took her last breath. You know when a person's taken their last breath. And I was right next to her. My mother was next to me, and my brother was right next to my mom. We were all beside her. Right away, you know, we were just crying, crying so much. But something pulled my attention away from my grandmother's face, away from Magda's face, and to the center of the small bedroom where she lay. Mm-hmm. And... And something, it was almost like the air in the middle of the room started to shimmer. And then something opened. It was like something opened. It was like sort of looking into a chandelier and there were colors. But then in the midst of the chandelier, something opened up. And I was looking through and then I saw her, not as she, you know, lay riddled with cancer on the bed, but the way I always knew her, you know, an older woman, but, you know, active, full of life but she was moving away from me and towards something. And then I kind of looked past and I saw towards someone. And then I recognized my grandfather from the photographs around our house. Oh, and I'm boy. like, oh my God, she's been waiting for this moment for 53 years and it's happening and I'm seeing it and she doesn't want to go. That was the weird thing. She doesn't want to go. And I'm thinking, why would she not want to go? And then I got it. She was embarrassed because he was, you know, the same young, handsome man she last saw in 1944. Mm-hmm. And, and she's an old lady. And she's feeling like, like he's not going to want me. So he reached out, took her hand, pulled her to him, embraced her. And then they're kissing, and then she's young again, and it's like the ending of a Hollywood movie, except Hollywood could never get this the way it really happened. And, and then it got very bright, and then they were gone. And my mother and my brother are still crying and, and, and looking at, you know, at the body on the bed, and I'm just like tears are running down my face, but there's a big smile on, on my face. I, I can't believe that with her last moment in this world, you know, she gave me this, this, this peak beyond the veil, beyond the curtain. And, you know, I mean, what it says in the Torah, right? They, they, when somebody leaves this world, they're gathered unto their people. That's what it means. <laughs> somebody from that world comes to welcome you. One of your people comes to welcome you. And, uh, and I was just so blown away, and I almost didn't know what to do with that. Um, and so when I returned to L.A., you know, maybe for the first time in, I don't know, decades, I went to a synagogue, not because it was a chore or because somebody was dragging me or because it's just an annoying thing we had to do once or twice a year. Uh, but I just wanted to go and, and, and say Kaddish for her and, and honor her. And, um, and then that day in synagogue was also very powerful 
and the rabbi who spoke spoke very well. And I thought, you know, this thing that I've been looking for everywhere else, maybe I should try my own backyard. Maybe I was arrogant and young and dumb and, you know, turn my back on my own tradition and, and what a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started learning uh, and going to Shul and, you know, and, and Nina, I bet at the same time, and, and, and maybe she can now start talking about, because she lost her grandmother the same year at, at nearly the same time. Wow. Um, yeah. Do you want to, Nina, do you want to say you wait, your are experience? Are you waiting for me to talk? Yeah. Um, yeah, I did lose my grandmother that same year. Um, who was a wonder, I mean, she was, I miss her so much. We were, we were definitely very close. I wouldn't say that that had to do with my Jewish journey, really, because, you know, again, my, my family was, was always very, very secular. Um, but, uh, so I, I'm not sure that it's that closely connected. Um, as, as your, you know, your unbelievable story. And let me just say also, you know, Sal is not somebody that, that has visions all the time, you know, right. uh, he's not, uh, so it's, you know, so I, I, when he tells the story, I believe it because he never says stuff like that. I believe it too. Um, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then we started, uh, you know, we, we, we just started learning. We started going to synagogue. We, the synagogue that we started going to at that time after sort of shopping around a few, the one that felt right for us, was a pretty unusual place, uh, non-denominational. Uh, I used to call it reform. It was, it, was, it was reform. It was, it was reform. a reform show, but the, yeah. the rabbi was teaching Hasidic. Uh, and, and there was a lot of so much Karl Bach songs and Ruach. Like yes, that was that was great. Yeah, but, the singing was all in Hebrew. It but was, it was everything non halakhic at all, you know. Correct. Um, it was not a halakhic place. Um, they would even you know sell lunch on Shabbos and things like that. And um, the food wasn't kosher. Yeah. And the food wasn't kosher, but the teaching. Uh, was very sophisticated, you know, uh, just, it was Hasidic, it was Torah, it was, it was really very interesting, a lot of Kabbalah, um, and, and a lot of interesting people. There, there, there were quite a few movie stars and, and directors and writers and people like that there. And, well, what and really, and I'm sorry. just going to jump in and say what really, like that was the first time I was exposed to Karl Bach, Karl Bach music, Tomo Karl Bach, and Something in that music just touched me so deeply that it really was that that kept me coming back. And I, and I still miss that congregation in terms of the spirited davening, all Karl Bach melodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, there was a lot positive about it. Um, but as the years went on and we started, you know, growing spiritually, well, we wanted to start keeping kosher. And our synagogue was not kosher. And we thought, well, wait a second, do we really want to be more religious than our own rabbi? <laughs> so that's when we started to realize that, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the right fit anymore for us. Um, right. And then, um, but then the other thing that was going on, so I was learning from that rabbi. I was also learning, I was taking classes up at the, uh, the American Jewish University. Uh, not, then it was called the UJ. And, uh, and around town, Jewish meditation class, um, and every class I took from any rabbi that I learned from or any other synagogue I visited. We also started going to the Happy Minion, which was a Karl Bach Minion in our neighborhood. 
um, which was lay led. There was, you know, there wasn't a rabbi there, but there were some interesting speakers, especially David Sachs, who's been associated with the Happy Millions for a long time. Um, and everybody who ever said anything about the about the tradition, about Torah, about Hashem, would sooner or later mention the Talmud. Usually sooner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't go to yeshiva. I went to Hebrew school a few days a week and barely learned how to read Hebrew and not how to understand it, you know. And right. I, I didn't know what the Talmud was. It was clearly full of wisdom. Uh, and I was curious about it and interested, but I just didn't know what it was or where to begin or how to access it. And whenever I needed a kippah or, or a talis or a sitter or a prayer book, you know, or a gift for somebody, I would go to a Judaica store on Pico Boulevard in the Pico Robertson neighborhood called the Mitzvah Store, owned by Rabbi Shimon Kraft, who became a friend. And, uh, and so his store was also a bookstore. And, and I would always glance over at these shelves of Talmud, and, and, and there were so many of them, you know, and I thought, oh, wow, they have a lot of copies of the Talmud. And then on one of those visits, <laughs> on one of those visits, I looked a little closer. And I'm like, "Oh my God, this is—it's not all the same book. <laughs> this, is, this is one set of the Talmud, and it's 73 volumes." <laughs> you know, you know, in my house growing up, I mean, we were definitely you know somewhat intellectual family that cared about knowledge and wisdom, and and we had an Encyclopedia Britannica, so. Those burgundy volumes were roughly the same size and thickness as these volumes of Talmud. And in the Encyclopedia Britannica, you found the wisdom of humanity in 23 volumes. And the wisdom of the Jews is 73 volumes. Wow, "Wow, this is a lot of stuff. How do you... And that made it even more intimidating for me. I, I just... Okay, I guess in this lifetime I missed the boat. I didn't have a yeshiva education. I'm not going to get to read the Talmud, and 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 walked away. And 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 that that must have happened a dozen times. I would be in that store. I'd glance over at those shelves of Talmud. I think, wow, it must be full of wisdom. I wonder what's in it. But I guess it's not for me. And that happened a bunch of times. And then once it was 2005. I was in the store. I was replacing a prayer book that I had given away during a trip to Europe uh, at a Chabad in Antwerp, Belgium, actually. And, um, and then I glanced over at those shelves, had that same thought process. I guess it's not for me. I'm intimidated. And I started walking away. And then something stopped me. And I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I, I actually went to Harvard. I was an English major at Harvard. I have a law degree from NYU Law School. I have a Master of Fine Arts from UCLA Film School. Nina nice. and I are bibliophiles. Uh, our home has always been full of books. We're, we're readers. We love books. And, 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 and now I'm backing down from books, is what I thought in the store that day. I said, eh, they're just books. There must be a book one of the Talmud. I'll just get that and see what it's like. So I picked up the nearest one and because uh, they were out of order on the shelf. But the nearest one told me that, uh, you know, book one of the Talmud is called Brachis. And I looked around. Brachis, blessings. This is the first book of the Talmud. I'm going to buy the Talmud. So I, I took my first volume of the Talmud up to the, uh, the counter to buy it. And the kid at the register, 
who I later learned was named Zach Plotska, uh, looked at me and says, uh, oh, you're doing Doc Yomi. So I said, what's Doc Yomi? And that made him pause. And he, he wears glasses, and he sort of pulled his glasses down to the tip of his nose and looked over his glasses at me as if to say, are you kidding me? And I thought, oh, man, Doc Yomi must be a code. And if you don't know the code, you're not allowed to buy the book. <laughs> it must be like Kabbalah. You have to be 40. Maybe the Talmud. You have to be a licensed rabbi and be a yeshiva graduate. And now he knows that I'm not, you know, qualified <laughs> to buy the Talmud. And he's got to get rid of me without embarrassing me. Oh, man, how do I get out of here? And he says, uh, well, Daf Yomi is a program where people around the world read the entire Talmud on the same schedule, one page a day. It takes seven and a half years to complete. And today is day one. Wow. So let's review that. So I happen to buy book one of the Talmud on day one of a seven and a half year cycle. What are the odds? That's like, like yeah, one in, in 2,700, right? One in 2,711. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Exactly. I mean, it would have been amazing, Shlomi, if I bought, you know, book one of the Talmud in the first month of Dafyomi. That would have been amazing. Right. If I, if I bought it in the first five days of Dafyomi, it would have been amazing. But when God wants to send you a message, like he makes it clear as day. <laughs> day one. <laughs> And I had no idea what Dafyomi was, and I just happened to buy book one of the Talmud on day one of a seven-and-a-half-year cycle. So I said, okay, God, I get the message. I guess I'm doing Dafyomi. And, uh, you know, a lot of people start Dafyomi, and, 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 and they are rabbis, and they are yeshiva graduates, and they do know how to, how to read a Mishnah and a Gemara. And even so, they don't finish. Because Tafiomi requires about an hour a day, every day, for seven and a half years. You're getting married, doesn't matter. Do your daf that day. It's Yom Kippur, do the daf. You're sick, do the daf. You're directing a movie, do the daf. And just to, just to explain for people that may not know, daf simply means page. Exactly. Do your page, the page of the day. And, and how, many, um, how many cycles ago I was this? Like that, so that was 2005. So since then, there was a cycle that ended in 2012, and then right. the next cycle ended in January of this year. Mm -hmm. uh, so two cycles ago is when it started. And, um, you know, I, I just felt like God put the book in my hand. I, I need to live up to the, uh, the opportunity that I've been given. And, uh, and I stayed with it. And in the beginning, I mean, it was ridiculous because I, without the background, you know, even if you're reading it in an English translation, and the art school translation is amazing, still, there's so much jargon, there's so many concepts that you kind of need to know, you know, what's the difference between Tahor and Tameh, you know, between pure and impure, and what does pure and impure mean? It's not about whether something is dirty or clean. Right. It, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a spiritual concept. And things like that, it, it just took a while to get it. Um... But over the first, oh, and, and I learned almost right away, you're not supposed to learn alone. You, know, you shouldn't be doing the Talmud study alone. So I looked up online, and there was uh, 
You know, so there are classes in the Talmud called the Shir. And in, 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 if you live in the United States, there's generally, in a big city, there's generally going to be three kinds of Shir. English, Hebrew, or Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to go to the English class, <laughs> the English Shir. And there was one taught near my house. We used to live in that neighborhood, Pico Robertson. And he was taught at the Eula Boys School at night in English. So I walked in. I had my, my, you know, my volume of Talmud, Ruckus. And uh, a few other students walked in, and then the teacher walks in, and he starts speaking. And, you know, half of the things that he says are in English, <laughs> and the other half are he's just dropping in Hebrew words and Aramaic words uh, as jargon. It's just jargon. It's like, you know, a scientist has jargon, an engineer has jargon, a politician has jargon, and this was the jargon of Talmud study. But I had no idea what he was saying. I said, look, in order to understand what he's saying, I would have to read the page first for an hour, then come here and listen to him for an hour, and that much time I don't have. So for the next three years, I did it by myself, uh, just with Rabbi Art Scroll, and you know, the editors of the Art Scroll edition, like I said, they, they do a beautiful job of putting it together. Right. Then we moved to another Jewish neighborhood here in L.A. called Hancock Park, and I read that, you know what, there's a Dafio Mishir every day, two blocks from my house. Uh, why don't I give it another try? And, uh, and I went to that class taught by Rabbi Mechi Blau, and, uh, and it, they said it was in English, and every other word from his mouth was in Hebrew or Aramaic, in the jargon, and I could follow it. Having done it on my own for three years, you know, that jargon did become familiar to me, and so now I was, I was totally in that world, you know, not with the same background as, as the teacher or the other students, but I could follow it. And uh, so I went the rest of the way with them. And in 2012, um, I, was, I was fortunate and you know, I'm blessed to complete shop, to complete my journey uh, through Dafyomi. And as, as, as the end was coming, I thought I should tell this story that I've just told you because maybe somebody else would think to try Dafyomi who wouldn't otherwise. Because if I can do it, anybody could do it. Um, and by the way, you don't have to start when the cycle begins anew. So if you're one of your listeners is thinking, oh, well, Sal did it. Maybe I should do it. Yeah, you could pick it up right now. No problem. And, it's funny. Um, I actually I, I want to tell you something. Uh, I started Dafyomi for the first time uh, this, this cycle in January. I actually started on, on uh-huh. the way to Saudi Arabia, like literally on a plane. And then... <laughs> That's so cool. And I, I, I like at first I went to uh, one country in the Gulf, which I can't talk about yet. Whatever. Then Saudi Arabia, then Dubai, and then I, then the next week I was somewhere in Africa. I just kept, uh, I kept doing it, and then after a couple of weeks, I, I fell out. But yesterday, I started again. Uh, Rav Shimon Bar Yochai got me back. Oh, there you okay. go. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. For your listeners, yesterday was Lag Bomer. I don't it's going to be recorded. They'll listen to it a little bit later. Right. Um, but yeah, the yard site of one of the great, great personalities of this Talmudic era. And, um, and so I thought I should just tell my story. I called up uh, my friend, David Suisa, who's the publisher of the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had become friends because he was a big fan of our first film, the comedy about a Passover state, or When Do We Eat? And, um, and we remained in touch. So we had lunch. I told him this story. And I said, if I wrote that up, would you publish it? And he says, 
that's a cover story for the Jewish Journal. Oh, wow. But I would encourage you to write a, a I would encourage you to write a blog for us as well. It'll help the story get out there even more. I said sure. So the accidental Talmudist uh, was the cover story of the Jewish Journal in August of 2012, right after the Siyum Hashas, the, the completion ceremony, uh, which I attended at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey with 93,000 other Jews. Uh, when I was at that stadium and we were all dancing, a massive horror celebrating this, you know, this, this cycle of Jewish learning, I couldn't help but think that those Nazis had filled stadiums to celebrate that they were going to get rid of us once and for all. And 70 years later, you know, they're gone from this world, thank God. And we're here and we're still learning. And our tradition that's, you know, over 3,000 years old is intact and connected. And I'm sure that my grandmother and my grandfather smiling on us. Um, and so the article went out in the Jewish Journal, but I had also started a blog uh, initially on the Jewish Journal website. And to publicize the blog, I started a Facebook page and called it Accidental Talmudist also. Right. And, uh, and then this was the biggest surprise of all because, okay, so I'm sharing you know, fairly specialized knowledge from the Talmud and my experience and why I think it's special on Facebook. Uh, so I thought, uh, you know, if we get a couple hundred people following this page, that'd be amazing. You know, maybe one or two of them will start doing Dathiomi and mission accomplished. That'll be great. But, but the page grew. I mean, we had learned quite a bit about, you know, sharing content on Facebook because of our second film, Saving Lincoln, where we had a, a, a page dedicated to Civil War history and photography that grew to 100,000 followers. So we learned some of those principles. Wow. And, um, and we put out a little ad for a few bucks a day saying, you know, film director Salvador Litvak spent seven years studying the Talmud and now shares Jewish wisdom every day. And, uh, and that ad and the post started attracting people and it started growing and growing and growing. And a few years later, you know, the community had grown to over a million people uh, around in 70 countries. Uh, we, we just, you can't know for sure because Facebook won't tell you this kind of information, but from interacting with our audience, we're pretty confident that more than half the people are not Jewish. Uh, they recognize that a body of wisdom, you know, that has lasted for 3,000 years, nurtured by a group of people that clearly value education and learning and are adding to that body of wisdom in every generation, well, there must be a lot there. And Nina and I feel strongly that, you know, the wisdom that we as the Jewish people have nurtured for all this time, we nurtured it not just for ourselves, but as custodians of this wisdom for the whole world. I mean, when it means to be a light unto the nation, it means that that's a light for the nation. And, you know, many, many within the Jewish people, some people do their job by being very insular and guarding their community and the purity of their community and making sure that they do everything that they need to do without, without outside influence. But other members of the Jewish community fulfill their part of the Jewish mission by shining that light outward. Uh, yeah. And and that's where we are, and and you know there there are just many 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 teachings that are completely universal, uh, 
and, and and we share that every day and we just we share what's beautiful in the tradition when when live video became a thing we started doing live shows we've made hundreds of videos we write articles we for the first five years we didn't even have a website we were only on Facebook but now you can go to accidentaltalmodist.org uh, and see some of our best stuff uh, and I teach and now yes in January I teach my own Dapiomi here. Uh, every day on Facebook Live and YouTube, actually. And um, and I don't teach the whole doc. I don't teach the whole page. I take, you know, certain key concepts that stand out and, and go into a little bit of depth on them each day uh, and try to make them relatable, uh, you know, to an audience that includes very religious, well-learned, studied people and total beginners to the Jewish tradition, not even Jewish, who are just curious. Uh, and want to learn more. Wow. And, and I'll just say something uh, interesting. I was just going to say that, um, that, that, that the community, the, the, the non-Jews in our community, there's a lot, a lot of Christians who are incredibly interested in what they consider to be like the roots of their own tradition. Right. And uh, what really surprised us is there's so many people from the Muslim world uh, Pakistan, Egypt, Iraq. I mean, there's so many people, so many Muslims that they may have heard bad things, but they don't really know any Jews, and they're they're very curious. Right. Uh, you know, so that's been a wonderful revelation. How many people are interested in what we have to offer? Yes, yeah. I want yeah. to get back to that in a minute, but I want to ask you, Nina, because you're very uh, very much featured on the page as well. How did this whole journey affect you? What did you think of it in the beginning? And and you know, what's your involvement? Oh, um, well, let's see. I mean, we, we really have been on the path together. So it wasn't like Sal was dragging me along or anything like that. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I just always had this thirst uh, for learning more about, you know, Judaism, being Jewish. So, so we're very lucky that we found each other and that we both had that interest and we've been kind of growing and there's definitely been times at which I've been moving a little faster or Sal's been moving a little faster. Um, and I will tell you that from the time we, we first walked into a reformed show until when we became Shomer Shabbos was many, was a long time. We, you know, we didn't just jump in overnight. It really has been a very slow progression. One step at a time, keep moving forward. Um, and, but, but the demarcation of, so, so before we actually started keeping Shabbos, you know, we, we would like candles and we would have Shabbos dinner and we didn't, you know, we didn't have any technology or watching TV or anything like that. Um, but we would drive to show. But we would drive, yeah. We would drive to, our, to a conservative show. And so we felt like we were observing Shabbat, you know, and, and compared to the way I grew up, I mean, it, it was, we were hugely religious. But that moment when we actually started keeping Shabbos, was such a huge difference, um, such an enormous blessing. So anyway, to answer your question for me, I mean, I, we, you know, we've really, the, the part that I have not been comfortable with is not the religious observance, but it's being part, being on camera, which I sometimes am. And, you know, I, Sal is really kind of the front man. He loves to be on camera. He loves to talk in front of audiences and he's kind of pushed me a little bit out of my comfort zone so that sometimes that, you know, I am on the show and like you said, I am pretty, 
pretty, um, you know, uh, visible but, on the but, page. But, but Nina also, I mean, we're writers, and, and so much of what we do is writing. And so, for example, every week, Nina writes uh, The Thursday Hero, which is some of our most popular content. Every Thursday, she profiled an unsung hero, you know, often from the Holocaust, but certainly not always. Uh, but somebody who did something amazing for other people, sometimes sacrificed themselves, often saved lives. Uh, and they're incredible stories. And, you know, they're not always well known. There's tons of them on our website. And, and if you follow uh, Accidental Talmudist on Facebook or join our email list, then you'll read that, that Thursday hero story every week, which is great. Mm-hmm. So being that you have this huge audience, which I mean... Mazaltov on that. I don't know how it's like. I don't even know how it's possible to get a million likes on Facebook. That's gigantic. Um, being that you have that, you must have some really crazy stories from people you've connected with uh, through the page. Can you share any of those? Sure, sure. Do, do you want to go first, Nina? Or? Uh, I'm just thinking. I mean, we definitely have a a lot of you know, kind of super fans. Um, one thing, I don't know if this is a crazy story, but uh, so many people ask us, how can I become Jewish? Um, which is, so we have a lot of um, people in the community. I mean, we don't encourage that, you know? I mean, we'll just right. kind of tell them usually to contact uh, Chabad or something. Well, I, I will say to them, listen, a rabbi, you know, it's his job to tell you no a, a few times. And he's doing that as a favor to you, because if you become Jewish, you're going to be obligated in all kinds of laws that you're not obligated now. And you could be a perfectly good, righteous, God-loving person without being obligated in all those laws. Right. But I'm not a rabbi, and I'll tell you, I love being Jewish. <laughs> and so if you're ready to start learning and to see if this is for you, you should learn more. Yeah. Um, another, another kind of person that we get, get quite a few... Um, you know, we don't use names, but there, there's a woman uh, who lives in Pensacola, Florida, who told us that much like, you know, Nina's story, that, that, that you know, there, there hasn't been any religiosity uh, in her family for quite a while. She knew she was Jewish, and that was it. And, you know, she said, I never did a mitzvah on purpose in my life. <laughs> and then she bumped into us on Facebook, um, and, and she just saw how, how much we love it and how warm it was. And to make a long story short, now she's lighting Shabbos candles, and so is her daughter, and so is her granddaughter. And, and that happened because, you know, she found Accidental Talmudist on Facebook, uh, which, is, which is really very so many. We have so many, so many stories like that. That's very yeah. beautiful. Um, I mean, there, there are, and I, we know because we understand these people because in some senses we were these people. There, there are there are people who mistrust rabbis. They, yeah, had, I mean, a bad, they had a bad experience somewhere along the line, mm-hmm. and, and they just lump all rabbis together, and, and, and so they just... Another way that Nina and I like to talk about it is, imagine if the only sushi you ever tried was like three-day-old sushi in the supermarket. And then you say, well, sushi sucks. Yeah, <laughs> and then you would have turned your back on something without ever experiencing, you know, its best version. Right. And so, so many Jews, especially in America, have turned their back on Judaism, 
and the Judaism they turn their back on, yeah, I would turn my back it's on. Not it's not Judaism. It's not Judaism. It's boring. It's uninspiring. It doesn't have the depth. It doesn't make and, demands and, on you. It's and, not- and, you know, I mean, Chabad and Ace do such valuable and important work. Um, but the thing is, you know, there's a lot of Jews that Chabad and Ace can't reach. That They will never walk into a synagogue. If they see a Chabad rabbi coming, they're going to run the other direction. I know those people. Those right. are my people. They, you know, you can't get them into a show. But if you reach them where they are and they're at home and they're on online, you know, there's no pressure. Nothing's intimidating. Because, yeah, let me tell you, a lot of people that are from from birth, they really do not understand. And I feel like they should understand more. When you're Jewish and you have no Jewish education, it is incredibly intimidating to walk into a synagogue. You don't know what to do. You don't know what's going on. You look like an idiot. Uh, it's very, very scary. So I think we're so not scary, you know, we don't lecture and we don't pressure and we don't judge and we're just there in your house, you know, on your computer. So uh, I do think that we're able to reach some people that are not being reached. And because we're we're writers and filmmakers, you know, and we're all about... We have an entertainment background. Right? Exactly. And, and, and we're about communication. So we're able to communicate what's beautiful without dumbing it down. And yet, making it accessible. I, I, if there's a secret that we have, that's it. Um, but I would say, as, as you know, to, to partner with Nina, what she just said to, to the you know the from crowd, the religious crowd in your audience. Something I heard uh, Stephen Weil say, the head of the Orthodox Union, yeah. uh, at APAC last year. Uh, he said, you know, religious Jews have a superpower that they need to use. That superpower is called Shabbos, specifically the Shabbos table. And, you know, if we only invite each other to our Shabbos dinners, so we're leaving the superpower unused. But if you bring Jews to your Shabbos dinner and show them how, you know, how beautiful it is, how pleasant it is, how great it is to be with the family and to share and to learn together and you know, so that, so that they see why we do it. At least that's one of the, the aspects of it. Uh, you know, it can open people's minds and make them curious and, and perhaps, you know, lead them in a journey uh, to rediscover their Jewish roots. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would really like to send a, a very strong message to all the from people, from people that are so fortunate to be born and raised religious. Um, and they, those Jews have such a treasure... And I feel like they're kind of a little bit keeping, them to, keeping it to themselves. There's so many from Jews who are so pious and so righteous, and they do so much chesed, et cetera, but they seem very unconcerned with all their lost brothers and sisters. And it's like, you know what, if you have a huge table full of the most beautiful, delicious gourmet food, healthy, delicious food, and your brother and sister over there starving, like, aren't you going to invite them to your table? And so I want to challenge, you know, if people out there that are from from birth, uh, you know, invite that secular neighbor, invite that secular coworker. Maybe they'll say no. Maybe you'll invite 10 people and only one will come to your Shabbos table. But you've done a huge mitzvah. And I think there needs to be more focus on that. Yeah, for sure. And I love what you guys are doing because you make it so user friendly. Like, it's very exciting to me. I, I'm from, from birth. I'm, you know, I'm Hasidic. I have the long payas and everything. You have a very exciting channel. Um, there's so much happening there every day. It's really, really entertaining, and I highly suggest that people check it out, and I can understand why you do have a huge audience. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lance. So uh, do you have a few more minutes? Sure. 
Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Because you've, I've, like, looking through your page, right, you have, you've met a lot of cool people. There's always something exciting going on. Tell us a little bit more about the content and how you create it. Is this, by the way, is this a, like, do you guys have another job aside from this at, at you know, at the current time? Uh, well, I mean, we're still filmmakers. It, it's been a while since we made our last movie. Uh, because we've been so busy with it, with this, and and for you know for many years that we've been doing this, it, it was just a, a passion project. But it, it grew so so time consuming that it was not tenable. So we did a few years ago form a um, a nonprofit. We're five hundred one c three. Yeah. Uh, and just this past year, we finally started taking a salary from it. It's, it's modest. It's very modest. We're not going to get rich. Uh, well, we do fund. We have a big we have a big fundraiser every year. We which uh, we're yeah, nonprofit. We're nonprofit, and and we get paid by the nonprofit now. Um, and then in terms of uh, of how we do it, I mean, we're, we're always sort of evolving because we're so Facebook is for sure our primary platform. Yeah. Now my daily class is on YouTube. Also, it's, it's a much smaller number of viewers. But YouTube is good because people will always be able to find it there and find it later. Um, YouTube is the and, world's you know, I, second I largest uh, search engine. Exactly, exactly. And so, and after I teach my class each day, I, I, I list the topics that I covered. So hopefully, people would be able to find it in searches later. Um, but, but, but in terms of Facebook, Facebook is always changing. So you know, some years ago when Facebook Live started, we you know we we jumped on it right away. And in the beginning, you know. There weren't so many people doing Facebook Live broadcasts. <laughs> I was doing, you know, an interview with, with a rabbi, not necessarily the most dynamic guy in the world, but an interesting conversation, you know, and, and, and we'd have 10, 20,000 views immediately. Wow. Um, over time, it became harder to attract that kind of an audience. Because yeah, now so they want you to pay for it. We're doing Facebook Live. <laughs> and now they want you to pay for it, exactly. Um, but along the way, some things have remained constant. So, for example, uh, Moshe Storch often appears on our show. He's a great, great singer. Uh, yes, he you is. Know, Carl Bach sort of genre. And, um, and Moshe has been sort of our sometimes official, sometimes unofficial music director. Um, so when Rosh Hodesh comes along and, and Moshe or someone else leads uh, a Carl Bach, you know, musical hollow, we'll broadcast that. Uh, when I find myself you know, at the Chabad Kinnis with 5,000 people, and I can go live there or at least make a video and share it. So sometimes it's sort of like I'm sharing what's happening around me that I'm inspired by. Other times I'm interviewing a guest. Like, Shalami, I want you to come on my podcast, by the way, so we can talk about your travel, yeah. your amazing experiences. So I'm very I really wanted to visit you. I was in L.A. Um, in the summer. Oh. I was there for, it was a crazy story, but basically I went on this week-long trip that took me from, I started on Sunday morning, I flew to Las Vegas, went to Area 51, then Monday I was in LA, just <laughs> from Monday morning to Monday night, Tuesday I was in Houston until Tuesday, after, till Tuesday afternoon, then I flew to Cuba for two days, then back to Houston, and then on Friday morning I flew to, to Newark to be with my wife for Shabbos. It was a crazy week. Uh, and, and the craziest part is that the whole trip was booked on Friday morning. And on Sunday morning, I was already on the plane. So I got to do two things. Well, I went to, I went to Fish Grill, which was very important for me. 
and I went to <laughs> to uh, Jeff's also, um, which was awesome. Very I, I important. Davin, I Davin Shachar said worldwide and, landmark. Yeah, yeah, the Jeffs is just the what? best. I'm, I'm always talking about it. I went to Shachris at to the Pico Shul to Rabbi Yonah. Uh-huh. Then Good I friend. spent the afternoon with Rabbi Yitzhi Horowitz, and we did a very touching article with him. Oh. And then in the oh, evening... Okay. Another friend. Yeah, 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 you know everyone there. Okay, in the evening I went to... Um, I met with Shifra Klein and her husband, Alex. They sell, like, um, CBD products. Okay. So and then I was out. So it was know. really fast. But like, I would have loved to 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 meet you guys, and hopefully in the future, I know you come to Uman. I've seen you there, but I never got to see you. Like, never got to meet you personally. And I also go to the Kinnis every year. So we, like, there's plenty of room for us to to find uh, to find each other. Beautiful, beautiful. I look forward to meeting you in person. Same. And yeah, after after we finish the the show, we'll we'll make an arrangement. I definitely want to have you on mine. Um, but then in terms of the content that we make, so, you know, interviews, travel, music, uh, articles, class. Uh, I partnered with JLI. I taught their first ever online JLI class um, about Journey of the Soul. That was really interesting. Um, normally, JLI empowers Chabad rabbis, you know, to teach really high-level uh, curricula in, in their shuls, but they never did it online. Um, and, and Rabbi Fry Mintz trusted me to do that. Uh, and that was fascinating. You know, it was fascinating to teach the journey of the soul with, with such a diverse group of people as come from our audience. Right. Uh, to, you know, to talk about Jewish views of, of, of life and death and, and the hereafter. Uh, so that's the, kind, the kinds of content uh, that we do. We had uh, Matis Yahu. Most people are familiar with Matis Yahu, the great singer, reggae sure. singer. Uh, he, he came on our show. He did a little concert in our backyard. <laughs> it was the coolest thing ever. Nice. <laughs> and did, did you have Nisa that Black also? Did I see that once? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Yes, yes. He was in our backyard. Uh, Zusha yeah. was in our backyard. Oh, I love those Zusha guys. Zusha was on our balcony, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've been very lucky. So we've been very, we, we love it. We love it. And, yeah. and by the way, let, let, me just, let me just be very human here. And sometimes it, we're so bummed out, you know, because you never know what's going to happen and what's going to work and, and, and what people are, you know, when you go live, sometimes you share the exact same content and you get a huge audience and the next time a very small audience or some hater tells you he hates what you're doing. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it's like we're human and it, it can be such a bummer. But then I always try to remind myself, I said, you know, Hashem put that book in my hand in 2005. I had no idea what lay ahead. I mean, if you told me that I was going to be teaching Talmud to people around the world, I would have asked you, what are you smoking? Because <laughs> 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 you're smoking too much of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, here we are. I mean, here we are, and, and, and every day is a little bit of an adventure, much, much like your journey, Schleim. You know, we just don't know what, what the next thing but, is. But, but we are actually also right now returning to our roots as filmmakers, and we're working on a new movie project, which is a thriller, a mystery thriller, about a Hasidic rabbi who must solve a murder. He is the amateur detective. 
And uh, so we want to have a lot of kind of Hasidic teachings in there, but also a mainstream, uh, you know, commercial movie for a wide audience. So with a, with a Hasidic rabbi right at the heart of the story. That's so cool. Well, like, where are you holding for that. In that project? It's going to be a few years. Right now we're writing it. We're writing the script. Yeah. It's, uh, called, it's, when... called, it's called Guns and Moses. Yeah. Oh. Maybe I could do a cameo. Sure. I'm going to have to take a look at your first line. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got the pass. I'm a pass model. Yeah, you don't know what so you don't know which slime it looks like. I've seen pictures of Ami. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't have a picture of you have a very your good mind look. right now. But you, you have a very Nina, good look. He has a good look. Okay, Nina says very good look. look. Thank you. You 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 you're a step ahead of all the actors in Hollywood. Nina says you have a good look. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you something else. Um, when it comes to uh, you know creating your content, it's, it looks very fun. You guys, you guys look like you're having the most fun of all. Like more than all the people watching your stuff, you guys look like you're having a blast. <laughs> I what can I say? I, I like public speaking. Uh, I'm, I'm always a little bit afraid. You know, my 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 heart races. Uh, you know, I, I, I get nerves. I'm nervy before I, I do. I do a lot of public speaking. I, I, I tell my story, you know, to audiences around the world. It's always a bit of a thrill. Um, but I, I just feel very alive when I'm in that in that moment, you know. And, and, and that was actually something I wasn't getting directing actors uh, behind the camera. You know, and production is exciting. It's amazing. It's hard work. Uh, but I was always behind the camera. And uh, so Hashem said, you know, so now you need to be in front of the camera for, for uh, you know, for, for this purpose. Right. You ever, I do you enjoy ever, it. What can I say? I enjoy it. <laughs> do you ever look back and, and wonder what would have happened if, if you didn't walk into the, the bookstore on that day? Schlein, what would have happened if Zach Klotzker didn't say, oh, you're doing Das Yomi? Right. Zach could have just sold you that book and not made conversations. And not said that question. Yeah, you, maybe you would have right. just like... Think how important that is. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I would have bought the book. I would have taken it home. I probably would have read a chapter or two and said, yeah, that's interesting. And then I would have found a place on my shelf with many other books that I bought and explored and, you know, that then found other books. And then, you know, your, your interest can shift very quickly. If Zach hadn't said that. And so when you think about how many people... I, I mean, listen, that story that I told you about the lady who's lighting Shabbos candles right now. We have a uh, we have like a document. It's about 150 pages long, with uh, probably eight to twelve messages on each page of people who told us that they've been touched by what we do. Sometimes it's been touched unsolicited. Not not where we say please send us your story. Just right. people send it. Wow. Uh, and you know sometimes they're just grateful and they've been touched, and sometimes they say you know. You changed my life. I mean, I, I started learning. Uh, I got involved. I realized that just like you, I turned my back on something that I didn't know about. So all of those people have been touched because Zach Klotzker said to me, oh, you're doing Daph Young. He didn't make a little conversation. It makes a big difference. You know, he, he didn't just sell you the book. He took an interest in his fellow. You know, wow. he took an interest in his fellow. And that lesson is so, so important. 
And, and then let me add to that, that just yesterday in the DOF that I was teaching, um, so there's this, uh, we're, we're, we're learning about cures that, you know, remedies, things that people did in Talmudic times for medicinal purposes that wasn't a medicine that you ingest, but an amulet or some other kind of medicinal thing that you attach to your clothing. And right. the question is, can you go out with it on Shabbos? They were doing and some weird apropos, stuff back then. Yes, they were. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were. And apropos of this, you know, sort of discussion about things that are healing, uh, we came to the example of a tree that is sick. So a, a farmer has a, you know, like a fruit tree, and the tree is dropping its fruit prematurely. Mm. So if it drops the fruit prematurely, it's never going to become mature, it's never going to be edible, and it's a big problem for the farmer. So... So they had a treatment for the tree that was two parts. Part one, they hang little stones on the tree in various par- places around the tree. And that actually, they figured out, it, it strengthens the tree. It sort of diverts its nutrients to making its branches stronger. And, and, and somehow that leads the fruit to stay on the branches longer, mature properly, uh, and, and helps heal the tree. But the second part of the treatment is that you paint the tree or parts of the tree red. And then, and so the sages ask, well, okay, the stones make sense, but, but this, you know, putting some red paint on the tree, does the tree understand that it's being healed? Is, is the tree privy to the symbolic, uh, you know, treatment that it's receiving? Of course not. The tree does not have consciousness. So why do we paint the tree? Isn't that a practice of the Amorites? Isn't that a superstition that Jews should not be engaging in? Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and other sages answer, no. The reason we put red paint on the tree is so that a passerby will realize that this tree is, is sick, and they will pray for mercy for the tree. Yeah. And then they liken that to a person who has tzara'at, you know, the, the skin condition, and when they would get that condition, they would have to walk around and say, say to people, I'm tame, I'm impure. And isn't that a humiliation and embarrassment for the person who's sick? Answer, perhaps, but it also leads the passerby to pray for mercy for the person who is ill. And so, you know, we have this deep, deep teaching from thousands of years ago which is that when you see someone, you know, who's hurting or who's ill or who's suffering economically or who's having any kind of a difficulty, okay, so if you can help, if you can get charity, if you can give them a job, if you can, you know, spend time with them, fantastic. But if it's not possible for you to do any of those things, it is possible for you to pause in your day and say a little prayer for that person. God, please heal that person. God, please sustain that person. Take seconds. And if we're, gonna, if we're instructed to do that for a tree, how much more? How much more should we be doing that for our human brothers and sisters all around the world? You know, when we see people hurting, it takes nothing, just a few seconds to say a prayer for them. Making that prayer might heal them, and it certainly draws us all closer to each other. It's so important. So beautiful. And I was just yesterday, you know, that, that happened to be yesterday's page. I haven't read today's page yet. Yeah, so I did. I learned yesterday's page, and I and I 
I read that part, but you know, now that you have explained it, it has a lot more meaning to me, and I appreciate that. Um, so just quickly, two more questions. Uh, number one, for people who want to create content, and you guys have created a lot of content, I know this is a, a big subject, but what what kind of advice would you have for people who want to uh, be successful at that? I, I, I think that this, yeah, I've been talking a lot. Nina, do you want to say something first? Um, how to create content that kind of sparks, resonates with people? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it depends, you know, what area we're talking about. Um, but, you know, as you know from your travel writings, I mean, you just got to keep it fast-moving, entertaining. Um, bo- boring is death, you know? You just you, <laughs> anything boring is is, is not going to succeed. Um, you know... Uh, <laughs> Nina always says to me, let me just say what you say to me, Nina, every time I'm thinking about putting out a new piece of content, she will say, where's the emotion? Where is the emotion in this, in this story, in this teaching? Uh, where is the emotion? You know? and, 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 and it's not that she's saying to me, hey, you didn't put any emotion in it. Where is it? She's saying where specifically in that story or in that teaching is the heart of the emotion? You have to go right to that and make sure you bring it out. Mm-hmm. Right. And show me, just to jump in for a second, you know, that's what I respond to in your in your writings. You know, the guy in Afghanistan that, that just wanted the salami and the guy in Cuba that you looked for and, and, you know, his frozen freezer and those little details that make people really come alive and you care about them. That's that's what makes things work. Mm-hmm. So that's the second point. First emotion, second detail that allow that emotion to come out. Uh, third, then I would say is you, you don't you don't know anything. You don't know anything, right? You're telling somebody setting out to make content. Even we, who've been making content for years and, and have learned quite a bit, we don't know anything. And what I mean by that is you don't know anything until you try it, uh, and and then let it evolve. You know, as as writers, it, it, I used to teach screenwriting at a college. And to explain how that process worked to my students, I I would stand in front of them without a mirror and I would tie a bow tie. Not not like a pre-tied bow tie, right? But like an old-fashioned bow tie. And the way that you tie a bow tie is that you basically make some kind of knot. Like you just kind of get one loop through the other and then it looks terrible. And I would say to my students, well, what do you think? They're like, Mr. Lipak, that looks terrible. And I'd say, hold on a second. And then I would start tweaking and pulling at the little tab, you know, pulling this loop to the left and that loop to the right and straightening it out and tweaking it. And then, you know, 30 seconds later, it was a perfect bow tie. Mm -hmm. And so I think any writer understands that the way you make a good piece of writing is you get something down on paper and then you start rewriting it. And likewise, you put out stuff on social media like don't hang back until it's perfect. Just put something out and see what part of it works and what doesn't. And, and listen to your audience. Who's not? Yeah, exactly. listen to your audience. That's so we 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 really read all the comments. We pay attention to the numbers. What are people responding to? What are they not responding to? Your audience will tell you. So if you have a small audience, and you can even ask, you know, what do you like about what we're doing? What doesn't? You know, what would you like to see? So that and your audience yeah. and your audience may not be who you think it is. You know, when when I started out. 
I thought it was going to be, you know, Jews who were kind of interested in Judaism, but might, might be interested to learn more, uh, people who might just respond to Pirkei Avos, you know, the Ethics of the Fathers, that's always a great place to get compact teaching. It's like the greatest hits of Jewish wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we soon, right, but we soon learned uh, that, you know, Christian women in the South really love what we do. You know, Christian women of a certain age in the South, big segment of our audience, uh, young men in Pakistan and Egypt, big segment. I'm like, what? You know, we never would have expected that. So, but then we wouldn't have even found out that they were interested if we didn't just start putting stuff out. And we experiment all the time, all the time. You know, we just, just try something, see if it works. Try something, see if it works. Um, and then, and then another thing I would say though, is as much as it's important to experiment and no, not be too demanding with what you put out, make sure they can hear it, make sure they can read it. Don't, you know, don't have audio problems. Don't have, uh, you know, poor grammar, like take that stuff out of it. Make it as easy as possible for, for clear communication. Uh, but mm-hmm. beyond that, you've got to be willing to experiment and see what, what sticks and then do more of that. Okay, great. And the last question would be, I know you guys have done so many. There's probably, I don't know, I'd say, can we say 10,000 pieces of content that you guys have created online? Uh, yeah, probably. That's a lot. That's a huge amount. Yeah. Most Most creators have not done anything close to that. And you've met so many cool people. I'm sure you have so many more stories that you can tell and, you know, the people that you've touched and everything. What is the, is the dream that you have not yet accomplished? What, if you can do, if you could do anything, what would it be? Uh, I'm just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Take your time. Um, I mean, I, my, one goal of mine, you know, we're reaching one million people, which is great. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, one million. That's awesome. Well, I want to reach one billion. <laughs> I want one billion people on Facebook uh, learning with us and part of the community. So, so that's in terms of a goal. And what do, what do we, what else is it that we want? Um, well, what, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because we'll, we'll see. We'll see if this works out. But, uh Originally, when we first started and the audience was much smaller, because we're in the film and TV business, we thought, you know, we'd create a TV show. And, and the show would be sort of like the Anthony Bourdain of Jewish wisdom, where okay. I would go, a little bit like you, Sean, I, mean, I, I would go on journeys, uh, not so much to visit places as to visit sages. Right. And, and then I would meet, meet a sage and, you know, we kind of meet him in his home, have a bit of a conversation there, and then go somewhere that's meaningful to him or her. And we would do uh, quite a bit of walking and talking. And, uh, and so we actually did that with, uh, with five sort of big, pretty prominent thinkers and, and, and teachers in Israel uh, in 2014. And then we made a sizzle reel out of that. And it was really cool. It would be called The Accidental Talmud, a show, a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we got back, it was like, you know, PBS was, 
I mean, we know how Hollywood works, right? And so, like, to, to, to try to sell faith in Hollywood was going to be a real uphill battle. And and on the other hand, our Facebook page was taking off, and our live shows were big, and we ended up just kind of shelving uh, that, that that promotional reel for that show and didn't do anything with it. Right. And then recently, I won't I won't say the name, but but there's a platform that's forming uh, in Israel, kind of like an Israeli Netflix. And uh, and we ended up talking with them about something else. And I said, you know, you might be interested in this show that I, I once shot a reel for, and we didn't do anything with it. Uh, and they are interested. So it's very preliminary. I'm not going to say anything more. Uh, but whether it works out with them or someone else, I, I would just feel very comfortable uh, in that format. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and so working with a proper film crew, a lot of walking and talking and having these kinds of conversations and interviews like I have on my show, but, but with a real professional, more polished. visual, more polished, and, and well-edited, yeah. right. and for a general audience. It sounds very exciting, mm-hmm. and I, I look forward to seeing that uh, as soon as it happens. I think that would be fun. That would be fun. I'd also, by the way, I would like to daven on the moon. I think that would be good. What? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no. Why not? No. Why not? <laughs> no. That's a tough one. I'm young enough. It might happen. <laughs> yeah, but there's there's many halachic problems with going to space. Well, you got to dive in like like every 15 minutes, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shachris Milchamarev. Like, you'd be, be pretty busy up there. <laughs> there wouldn't even be time for a selfie. <laughs> and and also it's Sorry. like it would be like Shabbos every hour and a half. <laughs> but that's when you're in orbit, right? If you're on the moon, then it might slow things down quite a bit. I mean, in fact, if you're on the bright side of the moon, I think it's like day all the time. Like you just do chakri, and then you don't have to daven again until you leave. <laughs> I think you should you should you should actually make a film about that, or like a short film. Like, what would it be like to to keep Judaism on the moon? Talk to some scholars, halachic you know, authorities. That would be interesting. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's a good idea. It, it would be interesting. Probably even the sages of the Talmud thought about it. <laughs> There's probably some teaching in there somewhere. I can't remember offhand. But uh, it's amazing how many questions they asked at a time when the science wasn't even thinkable, you know? Like, 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 like if meat fell from heaven, right? That is a question that they ask. Yeah. And it, it was just a totally hypothetical question, except that now, what if you could grow meat in a lab that actually is meat, right? It's, it's like a culture taken from beef cells. Right. And then you create meat, but it was never a living animal. Is it kosher? You know, it's a great question. Yeah, but another amazing thing is it's not just the questions they asked, it's the knowledge they actually had, like light years ahead of, of everyone else. It's really, really something. The Talmud is jam-packed with, with a lot of good stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, even when you just think that they knew how long the solar year was, isn't that kind of amazing? You know, that, that they knew that it was 365 years and a quarter of a day, and not just not just six hours, but it's like six hours and so many minutes. Like, how would you work that out? Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, oh, one more thing. Do you, Without do you... atomic clocks. 
Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, you know, there's all these, there's like a million people in, in uh, South Korea learning the Talmud. Are you in touch with those guys? You know, not so much, I guess. Uh, yeah, we don't have a lot of, we don't. I don't know why. I, I guess they, they, they're not so into doing it in English. Uh, but my good friend, uh, Rabbi Aaron Perry, uh, he, he wrote the, the Complete Idiot's Guide to the Talmud. Um, and, uh, and I think he's been taken to South Korea uh, to teach there, you know, with a translator. Have you been there, Shlomo? Uh, not yet. I want to do it. But I was thinking, you can, like, why don't you put some money into some Facebook ads, and you could probably build yourself a huge fan base in, in South Korea. Because they, 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 like, they love the Talmud. They're, they're all about the Talmud. They come to Israel, and all yeah. that's all they want to talk about. Yeah. Oh, right. That's amazing. They said, yeah, Jews are very is. successful people. We want to be successful people. What is it that these Jews do? Aha, uh-huh. they study business in the Talmud. Let's learn that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Nina, we've never done that. What, t- targeted uh, Koreans? Yeah. Targeted South Koreans for with ads? Yeah, it's a good idea. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe not a video ad, but just uh, just a very simple print ad that they could trans that. Facebook would translate the English into Korean. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then, that's your Maybe. that's your key to yeah. getting a billion a billion followers. Asia. Yeah, if you blow up in Asia, <laughs> yeah. you made it. Yeah. <laughs> you can get the Indians and the Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I want to thank you so All much right. for your time. It was really really fun. I can't remember doing a, a more memorable episode with anybody. It really was a good time. A lot of laughter. Good vibes, and I love what you're doing. Keep it up. <laughs> thank you so, so much. Uh, and you, we, thank you, Slimy. We really need thank to talk. You, I, we have a lot of stuff to talk about after the show. I, I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you guys. Likewise. Amen. Likewise. That was the Accidental Talmudist team, Sal and Nina Litvak. Wonderful, lovely people. I am very inspired by what they do. You know, it's really special that they are sharing their heritage. It's something I try to do as well, but they are definitely doing it on a much greater and grander scale. So I have tremendous respect for them. And of course, if you want to learn more about Sal and Nina or the Accidental Talmudist Project, check them out, accidentaltalmudist.org, or you can search for them as well on YouTube or on Facebook. They are all over the place. Check it out. Now, in other news, my YouTube channel is on fire. Guys, you know what's going on. There are new videos every week. Juicy videos from all over the world. It's worth checking out. You should take a look. Are you subscribed? You're not? Why are you not subscribed to my YouTube channel? YouTube channel is awesome. There are new videos every week. There's going to be a new video coming out tomorrow and next week and the week after. We've worked on this. There are videos ready, already uploaded to YouTube. All we have to do is press publish. So every week from now on, God willing, there will be new videos. You should definitely check those out. Additionally, if you're interested in following on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or anywhere else, at Chusidel, that's C-H-U-S-I-D-E-L. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoy the show, you already know what to do. There is an iTunes podcast store. All you got to do is leave us a little five-star review. It helps. Helps the podcast grow. Helps people find out about it. And it helps people learn that this podcast is fun and exciting and i don't have to tell you more thank you so much for joining us this week looking forward to seeing you next week 
Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye. You are not a goat. The podcast for you.